it's an amazing anomaly. You know, every other part of the body is covered by Medicare, mm. but for some reason, the mouth is chopped out of the body and treated completely differently. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today it's big idea time on the Grattan podcast. Today we're discussing a new Grattan Institute report that calls for a Medicare-style universal insurance scheme for dental care in Australia. It is indeed a big idea with lots of dimensions and ramifications. And to help unpack those, I'm joined by two of the authors of the report. Firstly, the Health Program Director at Grattan, Stephen Duckett. Stephen, welcome. Welcome, Paul. And I'm also joined by Grattan Senior Associate, Matt Cowgill. Matt, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Stephen, can you please clear up one thing for me right from the start? Why does Australia not have a universal dental care scheme? Paul, you're right. It's an amazing anomaly. You know, every other part of the body is covered by Medicare, mm. but for some reason the mouth is chopped out of the body and treated completely differently. And it goes back 50 years. Uh, in, the, in the late 1960s, when Labor was developing its policy on universal insurance, which has come to be known as Medicare, it faced enormous opposition from doctors and the AMA, and it decided it didn't want to have more opposition from dentists sure. Uh, at the time, and so it put uh, dental coverage in the too hard basket. So you think this is an idea whose time has come, just broadly, and we'll come to the details later, but broadly, what would a universal dental scheme look like? Well, Paul, the, the issue at the moment is that lots of people miss out on dental care because of costs. Two mm -hmm. million Australians miss out on dental care because of costs every year. A universal dental, dental scheme would address that. That is, we want to eliminate the financial barriers to dental, dental care uh, so people don't have to worry about funding to go and uh, have their pain, dental pain addressed, to have preventive care and so on. So what we're looking to is a scheme which involves public and private dentists, public scheme, public dental programs exist now, continue, private dentists exist now, continue, right across Australia, people would be able to go to a dentist and with no out-of-pocket bulk billing arrangements, they'd be able to see an oral health practitioner, a dentist or an oral health therapist and get treated for those preventive and primary dental care needs. So no more financial barriers to dental care sounds terrific. It also sounds pretty expensive to me, and I'd like to explore the cost soon. But can I ask you, Matt, first, a bit more about this need for a universal scheme? What's wrong with the status quo exactly? Well, at the moment, the status quo for dental care is just really very different than the status quo for other types of healthcare. So uh, when when you go to the GP, the, the government generally picks up all or most of the bill. Uh, if you have a prescription to fill, the government picks up most of the bill. So in aggregate, 
Australians pay out of pocket about 12% of the total amount of prescription spending, for example. The rest is borne by government. Um, when it comes to primary health care, uh, again, uh, people, uh, people pay about 11% of the total of primary health care costs out of their own pocket. Similarly, for hospital expenses, only 5% of hospital spending comes out of patients' pockets. When it comes to dental care, 58% of total mm. dental spending comes straight out of patients' pockets. Um, with a, a significant additional amount that comes from private health insurance, which is ultimately funded by patients as well through their premiums. So what that means is that essentially if you can't afford to go to the dentist, then you, you don't have very many options. Your only option if you can't afford it is you might be eligible to go on some very long waiting lists for public dental services. Okay, but I don't want to be flippant about this, but I don't particularly like going to the dentist. What's wrong with not going to the dentist very often? The issue is that a lot of um, oral health conditions degenerate over time. So if you right. leave it for a number of years um, until you're in significant pain or, or have some bad symptoms and then go to see a dentist, you might find that at that point the treatment you require is much more painful and much more costly than it would have been if you'd got regular care along the way that might have arrested the development of, of those oral health conditions at an earlier stage. So being able to, to go um, on a regular schedule, um, which, which might vary depending on, on how risky you, you are, you know, your, your general oral health. But being able to go to see a dentist or other oral health professional regularly for, for a checkup and some of those basic preventive treatments can really save you a lot of pain and a lot of money down the track. If I don't, can, I, can I challenge you, please, Paul? Please, Can I challenge you, Paul, on, on your comment about, you know, want to go to the dentist and what's the problem? Mm. A lot of people don't want to go to the dentist. A lot of people... Uh, afraid of dentists and you know so on yeah. and but the issue is that is going to remain if we have a universal dental scheme or not and the question is should some people in addition to their fear of going to the dentist or whatever in addition have another barrier put in front of them that richer people especially don't have mm. so sure they're always going to be you know, reasons why people don't go to the dentist. Aboriginal people might feel it's culturally inappropriate and all those sorts of things. Mm. They're real. They're important. But in addition, we've got financial barriers, which we can do something about. Thanks, Stephen. And Matt, am I right that if I don't go to the dentist for whatever reason for too long and my teeth deteriorate, that has impact on my health more generally? That's right. So as I mentioned, if you you know, leave it a long time between seeing a dentist, then your oral health can deteriorate. But there's a, an emerging and compelling body of evidence that says that, um, you know, your mouth is not separate from your body, as mm -hmm. Stephen alluded to earlier. So um, oral health conditions have been linked to a range of, of general health uh, conditions such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke in some circumstances, people with bad oral health. Um, bad oral health can be a risk factor for, for pregnant mothers. It can cause complications for them and for their babies. Um, so it, the mouth really is part of the body and, and treating oral health conditions needs to be seen as um, one way to, to help someone's general health. And, and can, it's also, it's not only their health, that it's their employment. I mean, bad 
oral health is, you know, people get embarrassed about their teeth, mm-hmm. they feel, you know, they don't want to go to an interview or whatever, and so it impacts on employment as well. Mm-hmm. And you also, Matt, alluded to the costs of people allowing or, or having their teeth to deteriorate. They offer, Those people are often clogging up more expensive, perhaps, parts of the health system. That's right. So if people do leave their oral health conditions to deteriorate to a point where they really need urgent care, uh, in some cases, people in those circumstances go to see their general practitioner just for for pain relief to be prescribed painkillers. That um, isn't very good for for the patients involved because Mm -hmm. getting prescribed those painkillers just just masks their symptoms rather than curing them. It's also not great for government and for taxpayers because um, the GP consultation and the prescription drugs, if, if some are prescribed, cost taxpayers money, and that cost could have been avoided if, if the oral health conditions had been seen too earlier. In some um, circumstances, people also show up at emergency rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's some studies suggesting that maybe as much as 1% of, of emergency department um, visits are due to oral health conditions. And there are some people who are actually admitted to hospital for um, oral health conditions that perhaps could have been prevented in some cases. And you write in the report about something called the social gradient for dental care. And indeed, there's a pretty dramatic chart in the report that shows that. But just, just for our listeners, explain what you mean by that. What is the social gradient? So the issue is, as we alluded to before, because most dental care is funded straight out of patients' pockets, if people can't afford to see a dentist, then they won't see a dentist in in most cases. Mm -hmm. So that means that low-income people, who of course have a a lower capacity to to pay for things generally, uh, are much more likely to avoid or delay going to see a dentist when they need to than high-income people. a bit over a quarter of low-income people who need to go to the dentist don't in a particular year or don't get care when they need it because of the cost. Um, among high-income people, it's less than 10%. So what we see is the, the lower your income, the more likely you are to skip or delay needed dental care because of the cost. Mm, and that's okay. what we mean by the social gradient. Matt, clear up one thing for me before I return to Stephen for some uh, more detail about this new scheme. Aren't I right that the state governments operate dental health schemes? What's wrong with those? That's right, Paul. They do operate uh, dental health schemes. Um, The issue is that they don't have sufficient funding to deliver the care needed by all the people who are eligible for those schemes. Mm So um, around a third of Australian adults are eligible to receive care under these um, state uh, dental health schemes. Um, But the, the funding that these schemes have doesn't allow them to come anywhere near serving all of those people. And as a result, the waiting lists are very, very long. In most states, the median waiting list, a waiting time, is over a year, meaning that Uh, Over half of people who are trying to get seen through these schemes have to wait more than a year. Now, because as we talked about before, oral health conditions degrade over time, you might not go on one of those waiting lists until you have um, Mm. a situation that needs to be seen to by a dentist. And once you've waited on a waiting list for a year or even two years in some cases, that condition will have have really deteriorated. So the issue is that these schemes... um, simply don't have the funding at the moment to be able to meet the need of that that's out there. 
Okay, so Stephen, I can see that there's a problem here that needs to be fixed and I can see that the state schemes are funded insufficiently. So talk to me about the cost of this universal scheme for Australia. How much would it cost? So it'll cost about $5.5 billion. Uh, put that in context, we spend about $10 billion or so a year on dental services now. Now that's a huge amount. It's yep. not something you could do in a year. Uh, it's in fact something that you should you can only do over time, both because of the quantum of money we're talking about, uh, as well as making sure there's the workforce uh, to to meet the demand. Mm. So, uh, but a universal scheme is, I think, where we need to be. I think the government needs to say, this is where we want to be. This is where we're we're going, and uh, try and achieve it over time. And so how are you suggesting that we pay for it? Because as you say, $5.5 billion extra a year is a lot of money. How might that be paid for? Well, there, there's a number of ways you can do that. First, uh, we already, as I said, spend the states spend uh, $700 million or so on, on dental. So you, you can reorient, reorient that so it's spent by the Commonwealth instead of the, instead of the state. Mm-hmm. You could uh, raise extra revenue. In a previous Grattan report, uh, we've suggested there should be a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, yes. uh, which would raise, say, half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, not only would it raise money, but it would actually reduce the demand for the scheme mm-hmm. as well. Uh, there are other monies that are already spent on uh, dental care, say through private health insurance, uh, that could be redirected. In other Grattan reports, we've identified uh, inefficiencies in the current health system. Say, we've identified in a previous Grattan report that uh, there's this huge variation in efficiency of public hospitals, and so you might, uh, if you can improve the efficiency of public hospitals, that would also save, say, a billion dollars a year. So there's money to be saved in the health system mm-hmm. and additional sorts of revenue to be looked at and redirection of funding, uh, which could all go towards reducing the the net cost on net drain on the budget. And Matt, another point occurs to me, which Stephen touched on there, do we have enough dentists to cope with what presumably will be a vastly bigger dental system? Yeah, that's a really good question, Paul. Um, We think that the short answer is no, we don't have enough dentists to allow us to bring in a universal dental scheme overnight. Mm -hmm. So the, the constraints on being able to move to a universal dental scheme you know, immediately I won the, the cost, which Stephen has already discussed, but also the, this, this workforce issue. So we do think that there is um, some capacity within the dental workforce to, to support expanded access to dental services. So mm-hmm. we think that um, if government were to provide more funding um, for dental services for low-income people, people who are already eligible for public dental services, that there are enough dentists and other oral health professionals out there now to, to meet that need. Um, but we would need over time to, to train more um, dentists and, and other oral health professionals in order to, to meet the demand that would come with a universal scheme. And Stephen, one other uh, little wrinkle that occurs to me, what about the private health insurance industry? Now, private health insurance has got enough problems of its own. Will a universal dental scheme toll another bell for private insurance? Um, well, we've, we've said that the 
impact on private health insurance in terms of the rebate and so on should be deferred until the last stage of the scheme. So right. that's, uh, you know, if, if it is a 10-year implementation plan, it's 10 years away. Uh, obviously, if, if Labor is elected, they'll, they've already said they're going to do a review of private health insurance, and so this could be taken into account in that sort of review. Mm-hmm. But even if, uh, you know, in 10 years' time, what we're proposing as a universal dental scheme is for preventive dentistry and primary care, the, the sort of the immediate needs. And so some of the other needs, such as orthodontics, uh, we're not proposing be covered in this universal dental scheme. And so that would provide opportunities for continuing private health insurance to insure against those sorts of costs as well. Okay, so just flesh that out a bit more for me. The universal scheme that you've got in mind, how would it work? What would it encompass? So what we're saying is that uh, in the first instance, you define the scope and we're saying it should be preventive dentistry, primary care dentistry, uh, the sort of first line needs that that people have. And, Mm -hmm. and And there's an existing scheme called the Commonwealth Child Dental Benefit Scheme, which covers that sort of thing. Uh, also covers, in the case of adults, would cover dentures. And then you say, well, who will actually provide those services? And what mm-hmm. we're saying is dental practices should be given an opportunity to, to sign up and say, we'll, we'll be involved. And if they sign up, they would say, no, no out-of-pocket costs, it's all, all is going to be bulk billed. Uh, if they sign up, they're going to say, we're going to participate in asking patients what they thought of our, our, our delivery of services, you know, the patient experience, what that's like. Right. They'll sign up to participate in quality improvement programs. They'll sign up to be monitored in, in terms of the extent to which they, they take preventive action versus drilling and taking out teeth for the first opportunity. <laughs> uh, and, and so there'll be a set of conditions for, for practices to be involved. And the same conditions will apply to private practices as to public dental schemes. But either could be involved on exactly the same basis, they'd get paid exactly the same amount for their activity. Over time, you might move away from a fee-for-service scheme to a, a scheme that puts greater emphasis on outcomes and, and, and so on. But you'd also be signing up to be involved in these monitoring arrangements to make sure that we are actually improving dental health and we're doing the best evidence-based practice uh, that we can possibly mm-hmm. do. Okay, and you've mentioned 10 years and you outline in the report what you call a roadmap to this universal scheme. Just describe for me so, the roadmap. So, Paul, we've set a set of principles about how we'd get there. And basically, the first principle is that we should give priority to lower-income groups mm-hmm. you know, to, to start with. And what we're saying is one of the groups you should focus on is pensioners and healthcare cardholders. Mm-hmm. These are the people who are essentially eligible for state schemes at the moment. And we're saying the Commonwealth should take over funding and put a whole lot of extra money in. Right. And by putting a whole lot of extra money in, we would be able to eliminate the public dental waiting list at the moment. More than half of patients uh, who actually sign up to be on a waiting list spend more than a year waiting for care mm. and others just don't get care at mm. all because they just can't wait and they just bear with the pain and, and so on. And so we're saying that should be the starting point. Getting the people who have an existing uh, entitlement under these state schemes 
getting their care right. And this will cost about a billion dollars a year, so it's another big investment. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying here is what we're aiming to do is make the rates of use of dental services for low-income people the same as the rate of use of dental services for high-income people. So eliminate the inequity that we see in the Australian healthcare system for dental care at the moment. So that's stage one, as it were, but you foreshadow Absolutely. Uh, a so, lot more. So over time, you want to expand it uh, to low-income children. You want to mm-hmm. expand it to all children because, you know, investing in, in children and getting their dental, their oral health habits right is a good thing mm-hmm. and expanding it to other age groups and so on. So you could, as I said, we're looking to see the first stage is three to four years just right. getting the public dental schemes right, the schemes for pensioners and healthcare cardholders right, and then expanding it and expanding it, and over 10 years, getting to the whole population. Okay, so sum up for me, Stephen, and let's let's cast forward. In 10 or 15 years' time, let's assume this big idea of ours has been taken up. Uh, how will Australia be different in 10 or 15 years' time? Most importantly, the mouth will be reunited with the rest of the body. <laughs> the oral health will become just another part of the health system. Mm-hmm. And with all that means in terms of reduced stigma and not treating it as something where you have to go to some state government scheme, it's just being part of the health system. Mm. Secondly, people will have better oral health. People won't have to live in pain. People won't be embarrassed about their teeth. People will be able to go to a job interview. People, Kids will start their life with much better oral health habits. And thirdly, we'll have a much more equitable system for oral health as we do for other parts of the health system. Stephen, thank you. And Matt, thank you for producing this important report and for your expertise and your explanations today. And thanks to you, our listeners. If you would like to read the report we've been discussing today or any of our other reports and articles on health policy and beyond, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at GrattanInst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.